guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jay. We have a fun episode for you guys today. We have Dave Engelman, who is the spokesman for Porsche Motorsport and Heritage. Which is the best combination, motorsport and heritage? Yeah, it's probably good. As he says in his interview, it's the best job ever. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it probably is. <laughs> I'm just saying for like our interests as well. Like, yeah, absolutely. It's perfect. It's great. And uh, we're going to be talking about Formula E. This is very interesting. It is interesting because I didn't... Before I, I sat down yesterday and today and did a lot of research, watched a lot of videos, kind of tried to figure out what Formula E was all about to prep for the interview, and I didn't know a thing. I knew right. nothing except for the little clips I've, that I saw where I was like, oh, well, that seems kind of – I struggled to get into it, you know, because it's just – it's not what I would typically go to. Right. There, number one, in racing, even with combustion engines, if it's not something that I could maybe buy, I'm really not that interested. Like, nah, pro, That's not true. For me. For prototype stuff, if, if if the technology gets so out there, I don't care as – I do care, but I don't care as much as, say, like a 911 Cup car, which is still the tub is a real car. Right. You know, so you oh, – okay. I, I understood that as if you can't go out and afford it, you're not interested. Oh, no, I just and I was mean, like, wait, so any of like sports car racing so any you new, don't like? No, any new I, – yes, I don't even like a brand new Daewoo because I can't afford one of those either. If it's not lemons racing, Chris isn't interested. Exactly. No, no, I just meant – I understand what you yeah, mean, I and I get that. A real car, I guess. Yeah, like the silhouette cars where they're so actually GT-based. That's my first barrier. Okay. To to Formula E is they're not real. Yep. Um, the second barrier <laughs> is they're not real. I think a lot of people would take offense to that. Yes, Chris. they are real, but they're they're not real. <laughs> okay. The second barrier for me is that they're they're all electric yep. and they don't make the correct noise, um, which is also a barrier for me. <sighs> yeah. And I don't like the noise that they do make very much. But how? It however, sounds like a dentist drill. However, the racing is supposed to be. I've heard the racing is really good. Mm -hmm. It's really, really competitive. The The circuits are tight. One thing that's cool is they don't use slicks, so there's not a lot of grip, did which that. is kind of like evens the playing field a little bit. So I'm like, okay, inevitably, this is the future. Okay, so whether you like it or not, you can be angry if you want to. This is the future. In the near term, we're going to have a mixture, right? We're going to have combustion engines mixed mm -hmm. with electric, mixture with hybrid. You've got hypercar classes. Um, as Dave talks about later, we've, they're starting to bring different things into IMSA. So mm -hmm. you're going to see all these cars out on track at the same time, which I think will be a really, really, really interesting, cool part of uh, motorsports that we're going to live through. Yeah. But at some point, this stuff is going to be the norm. Speaking of bringing all these things out on track, I just thought of this. How amazing would it be to get every single racing series out there and just run them all at the same time? I want to see NASCAR cars, the Formula One cars, with dirt track cars, with Formula E cars all at once on one track. Well, that sounds like a commercial for Forza where they show you all the cars that are available <laughs> that in the game. Sweet? <laughs> and then all of a sudden you have to take a left turn on a rally stage. Oh, well, yeah. there's, you know, the only cars that are going to make it to the end are those little Polaris Razor things. <laughs> it's the only car that's going to be capable of doing or the trophy trucks yeah, are going to be able go. to make it through. Uh, but before we get into that, we're going to talk a little bit project updates and stuff like that. But we do have a sponsor. That's what right. We, got? we have to talk about Petrolbox. Petrolbox is a monthly subscription service specifically made for the automotive enthusiast. Each month, they carefully select items, including tools, detailing supplies, publications, books, garage gear, stuff from stickers, over, stuff from Overcrest. We're in, stuff from Overcrest. We're working on designing some things right That's now that right. are going to go All in there. All this cool stuff. They box it up and put it right on your doorstep each and every month. It's There's a great, actually, great gift, too, which is... It's a great gift for yourself or others. Yeah. There's two different levels to choose from. You have the Petrobox Basic, which costs you less than 20 bucks a month, while the Petrobox Premium 
gets you more gear for $39.95 a month. Now, did you get that, Chris? Petrol? It's premium versus standard? What? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I was looking at my notes here. <laughs> All right, Regardless, so. you got to check them out at mypetrolbox.com. Use the code OVERCRESS to get $6 off your first month's order. So I uh, have reached another standstill on my car until I receive more parts. Yeah. So I was chatting with a friend about this who was also watching your Instagram stories. And oh, goes, boy. You realize he's just going to keep cutting into the car until he gets to the rear of the car. That was what you would think, but that's that's basically incorrect. One of the reasons why this area is now we're talking about the the area that I'm going to talk about is the basically the frame rail on the driver's side that sits behind the battery. Right. And one of the reasons why that area rusts so much is battery acid does leak down that longitudinal, and then it pools or and moisture sits back there. And it is one on the cars. It's one of there's a few different places on these cars that rust: the latch panel, the mm-hmm. door hinge panel, and here. And there's a few other places too, but main places, this stuff is a big deal. And this is the norm from what I am told. I've been told by many different people that work on these cars every day that almost every car looks like this if you cut them open. Wow. And uh, especially right here on this side where the battery sits. Hmm. So basically what it is, is it's the the rear control arm mounting point, kind of the steering rack mounting point area. There's a basically a captive nut, but it's it's this big burly thing, right? Because it's has to carry the Be suspension part of a wheel <laughs> yeah it's, it's important right but it's 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 rusty you know and exactly. i kind of asked a guy i said hey can i maybe you know just shellack the hell out of this thing yeah, can just I? get away with keeping it and he says absolutely not if he says if you you know hit a bump wrong you, your suspension could collapse and Which, then, and then all, i go i go well <laughs> we've tested that man <laughs> and it seems and it fine. seems okay but i'm already there and I, I thought about i thought to myself okay i could leave this fix it later so I could continue on getting the car done, but I don't have to do anything until May. You know, I really don't have anything to I, do. You know, it's it's, it's not going to be done. It's winter. It, it's not going to be 100 percent going to be done. Will not. Be I done. will get the new parts in the mail. I will be able to start welding that patch in uh-huh. the day that they get here, uh-huh. and then all it is is panel fitment, weld it back together. Uh-huh. The hardest part is going to be getting it to paint. Right. You know, that getting is where it to you're going to have a backup. I think, but it is not my job. So all they're painting is the two fenders. And yeah, that's it. The two fenders. Mm. And I guess the latch panel is probably yeah. what they're also going to paint. But that's all that's really you getting. almost, if you were smart, you would send. What do you mean if I was smart? If you were smart. Say, because you're smart, this is probably what you're going to do. If you were smart, you should send the fenders out to paint right now. No, because I have to keep taking them on and off again to do fitment, panel mm. fitment. Um, also, I noticed that my panel fitment is really, really good on that on the driver's side now where I have the the new Porsche fender. Sure. Now that I've cut all the bad stuff off, it fits it well. It fits perfect. That's good. It's up by the cowl and the door and everything. That's a good sign. All the gaps are like spot on. So I'm nice. really, really happy about that. Um I haven't tried the fender on the other side yet, but I have I've sold both of my old fenders. They're going away. So I gotta buy another new fender for the Wait, uh, you sold there. your old fenders? I did. I don't need them. Huh. They're rusty. You know they've got they're not rusty rusty but there's right. rust spots and i'm like you know what i think i'm just gonna buy new fenders and be done and not because it's what do i do i i buy a factory fender for two thousand dollars or i pay some guy 10 hours worth of 90 dollars an hour labor plus paint cost plus materials to paint the fender true when i could just have some guy go okay and he just paints the <laughs> the already perfect fender and right. he just paints the thing That's so i true. think it'll be it'll probably be a little bit more expensive but it'll be in the long run, in the long the run right it'll be way. fine plus there's no rust at all there's no repairs it's a factory fender it'll be nice that's where I'm at. It will be done by May. I bet this thing is done in April. 
Love it. I can't Are, wait. We, we I love that that is on record because no, it won't. Yes, it will. No, it, it will won't. be done by April. The thing is, is I'm probably not going to pull my motor out over the winter. Oh, I forgot you were planning on doing that, um, too. You're like, I'm going to do a clutch and I'm going to do all that other stuff. Uh, what I'm probably going to do is change out the oil cooler and see if that makes a difference because mm-hmm. um, I want to change out the oil cooler anyway. And it's right there right now. It's so easy to work on because it's just yeah, floating in midair. So we're going to change that out as in in, in the interim and yep. then probably pull the because I wanted to do a clutch on the car because I'm like, ah, it probably needs it. But then I look back to where I um, pulled the transmission off in California. It wasn't that long ago. It wasn't bad. And that, and I've the only other trip I've really done, I've probably put maybe fifteen thousand miles on it since then. It, That's fine. The clutch can't. No, clutches can't go for hundred thousand plus. Yes. Well, yeah. Usually, <laughs> I drive my car pretty seriously. Yeah, but, but you're a lot not of it, sitting there slipping the clutch constantly. No, I'm not. I'm. Not. I think it's Definitely. fine. All right, I agree with you. I, the only problem is I wanted to get after the thermostat and test right. the thermostat out, which you have to drop the motor for. Mm, so yes, you could take apart your airbox and CIS system and get to it. It's easier to drop the motor out. Yeah, it probably. Is. It is. It's. <laughs> it is. Take the axles off. Unplug the wiring harness. Disconnect the fuel lines, which are already disconnected because I had to drain the the gas tank. Oh yeah. And then drop the motor on the ground. It's very, well, you it's very easy. just do that. Yeah, just I'll, don't worry about the clutch. I'm just not, probably not going to do it right now. Maybe yeah. I'll do it after lift in like June, July or something like that. Sure. I just, I get, you know, every time you're about to go do something, it's always, do you actually touch anything or take it apart? You just no. kind of don't. <laughs> so I'm kind of, uh, I don't know if I want to do yeah. it or not. But what about, what's going on with you? You had some new parts for me that you yeah. refurbished. So if you follow me on Instagram, you saw I put together a little story. It was kind of interesting that when what's, you... Is your, what's your Instagram at? Shortman72911? Yep. Well, you have a 72, so no. That, <laughs> Wait, no, you're, you're the a... short man with the 72911. Ooh, self-burn. <laughs> no, so what is interesting about your 72 car, it's supposed to have the later kind of black trim on right. all the turn signals and the horn grills yep. and everything else. But that's not what my car came but with. But your car came with the early stuff, which is the chrome. Yep. Whereas my car should have the chrome, but it came with all the dark black stuff. Yep. So I was like, I was going to buy all the chrome trim that I wanted. And you're like, no, I have all this stuff. Let's swap. And you had already bought your lenses and everything else. So you're like, yeah, I'll take yours. You can have these. I painted these. These were chrome, but I painted a black. So I took them. I was like, oh, I got to strip these down. The first one I did was super pitted. And I was like, hmm, this looks like crap. The, and then the I did the I other two. Yep. And they're mint. So I, I gave you more s- than two? You gave me three for oh, some reason. Oh, okay. Yep. I don't know. You handed me three. Well, good. I'm glad that worked out for you. That'll be nice. So, to have yeah, a- they will look very good. So everything's kind of going back to that with the new wheels. It'll look really and good. And in trade, I'm getting black horn grills from you and the cover for my airbox or the blower the motor. Blower motor box. Yeah, and I have other stuff that you can have, too. Cool. I need to do the the rear badge on my car where it says Porsche and it says 911T. Right. Is, is basically aluminum. I need the black. I'd like to have the black badges on the back of my car because I have a black engine grill. And I, right. bl- and I have black trim. Oh, I never trim. even thought of that. Yep, yep. So I'd like to maybe maybe change that out, but that's, you know, not, that's not, little, exactly a, stuff. not exactly a priority right well, now. Well, you could just pop it off and paint it, too. Yeah, exactly. So should we get on to our interview? Let's do it. Let's learn a little bit about Formula E. And also, he talks a lot about what, um, you know, I was really interested in and uh, Porsches, if they had any struggles with this, because this is a different type of motorsport than anybody has ever done. Yeah. So let's get into it with Dave Engelman. Hello, this is Dave. Dave Engelman, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, man, to talk about Formula E. My pleasure. What do you What do you do for Porsche? That's a great question. Um, I 
title is spokesperson for motorsports and brand heritage. So in other words, in subtitles, you could say I have one of the best jobs in the company. <laughs> That's probably true. That's probably true. Um, so outside of Porsche, what is Formula E? Before we get into what Porsche is doing with it, let's kind of try and get a definition of what Formula E is for the people that aren't watching or don't know. Um, Formula E is, is an interesting uh, concept in motorsports. It's fairly new. I believe six years old now about that. Um, but it's a global all-electric all open-wheel racing series. Uh, the FA runs it, and it's designed to provide manufacturers a place to kind of showcase their technology, um, place for manufacturers to do some research and development um, as the automotive world moves towards electrification or further towards electrification. So tell me about the formula. So obviously we have a, it's Formula E, so there is a formula. Is it really loose? Is there anything that sticks out as strange because it's electric cars that maybe Porsche wasn't used to when they went into designing the car? Are they are the chassis given to you guys? How has this all come together? Um, good question. Um, it's changed and developed and evolved a bit since the first year. Um, it's a fairly tight formula, I think, certainly for us. Uh, outside of our one-make series that we use 911 Cup cars for and Career Cup and Super Cup around the world, um, we like open competition, certainly in GTLM and, and the pro classes that, that run at Le Mans and WEC. So here we have a chassis that's supplied, batteries that are supplied, um, and motor output, uh, electric motor outputs that are specified or under specification as well. You can't, can't use too much. Um, but the rest is up to us. The aerodynamics are... Uh, quite open. We can develop our own electric motor, motors, inverters, uh, cooling system, the gearbox, software, et cetera. That, that's all up to us. So, so is that software and stuff, is any of that coming out of the research that you guys did for the, you know, the Taycan and stuff like that? Is any of that blood in that stuff? Actually, yes. So it starts way before the Taycan. Um, we could probably look back to 2010 and the 911 GT3R hybrid, where uh, with the car system that was in the 911 R race car, where we had a naturally aspirated flat six, where it belongs in the back of the 911, and the car system on the passenger seat floor, providing um, what we know today as, as, a, as a hybrid. So where we learn where the brakes come into play, as far as friction points, uh, software, where the power from the electric motors come in, um, so it doesn't porpoise the car, doesn't provide too much power to the front wheels, or not enough. A lot of that began with that race car in 2010 sure. that directly went into the streetcars, the first the Cayenne hybrid and then the Panamera hybrid, and now continue 918 Spider, um, 919, and, and now with the 99X. So you said that you really like the open classes, right, where you can kind of do a little bit more. Um, does the simplicity of an electric motor simplify the formula enough that that kind of doesn't really matter anymore? Because at some point, you're just, if it's an open class, you're just going to just run more voltage at the at the at the motors, right? I mean, there's really not much you can do. That's you know, there's not as much variation, I guess I should say, like there is with the combustion engine. Um, yes and no. In many ways, yes. Uh, cost containment is one of the goals of the series. So by having many things um, locked down or tied down and and under respect kind of series, there's only so much you can do. Um, kind of wasting time if we do something around that. But on the other hand, it's fairly complex too. So um, under the FIA, they monitor power output, um, which is basically en uh, energy use in real time, um, racing and in practice sessions. So if you go over the amount that you're allowed, 
um, <laughs> penalties come along pretty quickly. Okay. And it's very similar to how is that like discharge uh, speed? Like you're only allowed to discharge the battery so fast, or how does that measured? Exactly. So it's measured in kilowatts. So you're only allowed to, um, let's say, expend so much energy over so much time. Um, not unlike per lap or per section of the track. It's not unlike the LMP1 hybrid stuff that ran or still runs under Lamar rules, where you were given so much energy that could be expended during the course of a lap, um, whether it be gasoline or electric, and it was monitored in real time, you know, little kind of like a strong Bluetooth connection, if you will, back to uh, race control, and it's all looked at. So in LMP1, you were allowed to go over a lap or two, as long as the average of, I think it was five laps, was under a certain amount. I think here under um, Formula rules, you go over and you're done. It's a penalty right away. So we, as we go through years, okay, so Porsche start out in, in the 70s, obviously, and what we see is we can see continual advancement, right? You've seen the perfection of the flat six engine that's happened over the last 30 years. Um, and that's one thing that's really cool to watch is seeing new power, new rev limits, and new technological advancements pushing the limits of you know, a technology that was invented over a hundred years ago. Um, is there anything that we're going to see season to season that's in that vein of advancement or are electric motors kind of locked in at the, at the technology that they're at now, or do we not even know? Well, another good question. So the way we've been talking about it here is, um, you mentioned, you know, internal combustion engine racing for over a hundred years. Um, you know, Porsche has been at it since before we became a car company in 1948. Um, we're at basically day six of electric racing. If you look at it in context to how long we've been racing um, internal combustion engines. So it's a new world, it's a new direction. Um, while I think a lot of us motorsport, traditional motorsport fans and let's say streetcar fans, if you're a fan of the automobile and, and enthusiastic, enthusiastic driving and uh, performance, Engine sound is incredibly important to yeah. us. Um, it's emotional. It, it touches people in a certain way. Um, and I would probably say that there isn't a new 1500 horsepower, you know, flat 12 engine around the corner that's <laughs> going to be 15 seconds a lap faster than anything else, like when it hit Pan Am in 1973. Um, One thing I always think, though, is I think that engine noise is tied with us because it's what we grew up with. So I, my absolutely. thought is, is that the younger generation that grows up with something like Formula E, they're not going to miss what we miss. It's not going to be there. They're not going to know. They might see it at vintage racing and stuff like that, but it's not going to have the same allure and draw that it does for us. So I'm wondering if it, as time goes on, the sound thing will matter less. I agree. Absolutely. Um, I think in many instances, <clears throat> excuse me, what we're used to um, will change a lot faster than it did, let's say, as we were growing up and for our parents. Um, things are happening at such a quick pace that it won't take long for people to look at you and say, you know, why did cars make noise? Why? <laughs> what was the purpose? Right. right. So, um, for us, we to, be cool, to be cool, man, to be cool. Exactly. We all cry inside <laughs> a little bit when that happens, but it's going to happen a lot more in a lot other areas other than just, um, automobiles. Right. So for good and for bad, what's yeah. different about this race that we wouldn't see elsewhere in motorsport? Um, there's a lot, right? I mean, there's a lot of different things that are going on here. Uh -huh. One of the biggest things is tight street circuits, incredibly close racing. And for an outsider looking in, one of the biggest differences is you don't have to spend half your day driving from New York City to Watkins Glen or to Lime Rock. You literally can take an Uber or walk a couple blocks and it's right there in your backyard or your front yard. 
and it kind of brings the racing to the fan. So you can spend your morning, go see practice, go see qualifying, go see a race, and you could hit a cafe for a snack on the way home, you know, four o'clock in the afternoon. It's a whole new approach and a whole new world to, uh, to what we would normally be used to, you know, getting in a car, driving eight hours and, you know, right. spending a ton of money on hotels and everything else that goes around with a traditional race weekend. It's, it's, it's just different. It's not, in some ways it's better. In some ways, maybe it's not so much better. It feels like you're describing uh, motorsport in the seventies. Yeah. It's, a you know what I mean? Of, it's almost like yeah. it's, you could, you could imagine that the people going out to see formula E today, I, I haven't been to a race. I, it, I've struggled to get interested in it, which is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm talking to you, but I can see someone being like, yeah, I remember when the first formula E races were out there and I went and it was like this. And now it's like this. You can, it's, there's millions of people and you can't do anything. You can't get close, blah, blah, blah. It's almost <laughs> like now is the time to go see it. Oh, for sure. For the that, nostal- if you're going to build nostalgia about something, now would be the time. Yep. And you access to drivers, access to teams, access to the cars, walking through the paddock. You know, it's in some ways it's go back to the way things used to be, you know, in the seventies, sixties, fifties, even, um, in other ways, well, things like the Watkins gun blog, uh, blog or, or long gone, you know, Sebring screen park, you know, you're not going to find that anymore. It's a, it's a different way of doing things. Right. So, when you're out on the track, there's a couple different things that I have questions about, and I was trying to figure out how this attack mode works. And it, when I first got a, uh, a glance at it, I'm like, oh, this is just like a DRS zone, but it's way different than that, right? It is. So the drag reduction zones are well, just that, um, where teams can trim the cars out a bit to, for an aerodynamic advantage. A um, little less downforce going down the straights, cars go a little bit faster. Uh, and you have to be within a certain amount of time yeah. between you and the guy in front of you. So there's a lot of limiting factors of when and where you can use it. Exactly. So it's another case of where let's say it's not, I think some of the purists would say, you know, let's build a car, put a big engine in it and let's go racing and, you know, the heck with the rules. Um, the oversight from the series is creeping in and just about every series there is out there, you know, except maybe some, um, their track stuff where you can still do that. But when you get into this level of racing now, it's there's a tight control from electronics and from race control in, in a lot of different ways. Is that, so, is that expected <laughs> because of do, is that something that the FIA is wanting to do or is it something that manufacturers want to have there to make sure that it's, that it's safe and, and their team doesn't get embarrassed because they didn't figure out this new fancy thing that everybody else could have figured out? Or what is it that has made things so strict, do you think? Um, parity is one. Yeah. Costs, cost containment is another. Um, you have various reasons manufacturers get into motorsport. In the old days, it was mostly R&D and, and a bit of marketing thrown in. Um, but that's changed now. Um, Porsche is still R&D heavy. The focus on, on R&D for Porsche is, is huge. And that's, we can get to that on why Porsche is racing here in Formula E. Yeah. Um, but if you're just interested in marketing, well, then you don't want to, you want to spend as little as possible developing a car, but you still want to have an equal chance of TV time and maybe a podium finish or a win. And by having some form of balance of performance, that tends to um, equal the field out a little bit. And quite frankly, it equals out the money that can be spent um, and limits manufacturers from, you know, not being able to contain themselves and outspending you know, the like we've saw, seen in Formula One, which is why they just put the price controls on over there. Um, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. what? Is, let me go back. And what is attack mode? How does it work? Okay. So attack mode is um, an interesting concept. Um, if you drive off the racing line, 
so stick with me here, um, in certain areas of the tracks, um, it allows for additional power consumption um, without being penalized. So, so you're basically almost giving up position to get this extra power for the car. You can. It's only at certain times and certain places. Um, you don't have to do it. Is it available every lap? Could you hit it every lap if you wanted to? Or is there a no, certain amount a, of times you can do it? Only a certain amount of times that you can do it in, in certain areas. Okay. Um, a lot of it is designed to um, get fans to pay attention lap after lap, let's say, versus sure. just having them circulate you know, on a, on a course. It's interesting. Again, it's not what we're used to um, from a traditional motorsports standpoint, um, but it's all designed to be interactive for the fans to um, to engage. No, I, I also think it probably comes into a lot of strategy of when are you going to use it? When are you going to hit these points? Has this guy used his already? There's got to be a little bit of that going on too. Exactly. And strategy is uh, an important, more maybe more so here than any place else. Um, strategy is incredibly important. Um, how much power you have, when you use it, when you don't use it, um, if you save it or you don't save it, um, trying to find track position, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So the other thing I was curious about is this fan boost. And this is something that I was kind of like, all right, <laughs> I'm not sure what is fan boost? How does it work? I'm just kind of confused at the purpose of this. You're not the only one. Um, but think of it as a popularity contest in a way. Okay. So um, drivers and teams go online. Um, they put out whether it be Twitter or Instagram or um, web pages and interact and try to engage with the fans, try to get them to vote for their favorite drivers, their favorite teams. And I imagine this being like some dystopian future where the cars are out racing and, and they've got in a little bit of a more extreme sense. Like if you don't win the popularity contest, you like a big saw comes up from the ground and cuts the car in half or something like that. It just seems like <laughs> A little, it's it's a big departure from traditional motorsport. It is, um, and you know, again, I kind of wrinkled my nose at it when I first heard about it. Um, but it's a, another way to get the drivers and the fans to engage with each other, as opposed to, I mean, if you've ever been to a Formula One race or you know, watch a bit of it online, you can see, you know, the drivers barely interact with the media, much less fans. Right. That's oh, oh my god, can't do that. And one of the neat things about other forms of motorsports, whether it be drag racing or sports car racing or even NASCAR is kind of coming around to it a bit, is the fans have access not only to the cars, but to the drivers themselves. Um, and, and whether it be autograph sessions, whether it be you know, meet and greets and whatnot, um, even as a manufacturer, this is still a people business. And right. to be able to connect that way is very important. How much of an impact does this have on the race? Um, I don't have the power. Uh, number in front of me, but it's similar um, to attack mode type, like using it once or something, or exactly. You get a five second window. I know that. Um, and it's only available in the second half of the race. Okay. So it's a matter of, you know, again, being a little more strategic with how you do it. And, um, the top five driver or top five driving drivers that get votes, top five vote getters, I guess you could say is, um, is the ones that receive it. Okay. So it's not like the, 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 the really handsome interactive guy gets way more than everybody else. It's just the top five get the same amount. Yes. Okay. That, that makes a little bit more sense. Um, so the uh, formula has been around for a few years and you could say, um, cause you guys just entered in, this is your first year. And like we talked about, it was like six years ago is when it started in the early seventies. That's when Porsche was last an underdog, right? I mean, you have the, you have the 73 RS comes out, you have the RSR come out and everything's kind of a mystery, right? The, nobody knows, what the future was going to be, that it was just going to be this huge, 
um, just run on success in motorsports. Uh, why did Porsche jump into Formula E so late? Why did you guys wait? What was behind that? Um, well, yeah, so because yeah, it's kind uh, of put I, you guys at like an underdog position because everybody's got a definitely a few steps ahead in terms of you know figuring this stuff out, right? In some ways, yes. Um, little back history. Um, yes, you're correct. The last time I would say we were giant killers, or at least have the option to be that, was somewhere in '68, '69, before the 917 came along. Um, once we won the mall overall for the first time with the 917, it was um, I think game on basically for expectations from Porsche to compete for overall victories. It wasn't always the case. We kind of stepped up and stepped back here and there over the years with different prototypes and whatnot. Um, but yes, once we once we had that feather in our cap, I think it's, it would be hard to discount Porsche entering any of the classes. Um, we weren't always successful, of course, but um, people knew when, when we were there. For Formula E, um, I think it had to be relevant to what we were doing from the Tycon street side with the our new all-electric car and um once the car was given a go wasn't all that long ago i think the decision was also made to go formally racing and the time period was picked we had a very expensive back to containing costs we had a very expensive lmp1 hybrid program going yep um once we were able to satisfy uh the, let's say the conditions for that with a four-year program with the, the three in a row championships and Lamar wins, we um, took a step back from there. And then our engineers turned a little corner and started looking at the Formula E program. The, um, many of the team, uh, as well as some of the drivers, Neil and Andre, came from the LMP1 hybrid program. So it isn't a big departure for who we are and what we do. And, and the team stayed together for the most part. Um, and um, we're just working on a new avenue now with with the electric so yes we may be a little bit far behind but if it's nicely and tightly with the tycon now coming to market for sure for sure so what were some of the things that you guys had to overcome moving from you know lmp stuff to uh for prototype stuff to formula e was there anything that really sticks out in your mind that was difficult um no not <laughs> um at least nothing i can share and say for sure right right um but um I think the Porsche, one of the things, while it's new and different, and, you know, certainly the Tycon streetcar is new and different, um, but ultimately it's another Porsche. And for us in motorsports, it's another series, it's another challenge, but it's motorsports. It's what we do. So well, in, in Valencia testing, you know, I watched some documentaries and stuff like that. Testing was difficult, right? I mean, there were some challenges that were there. The cars were understeering. They weren't handling quite right. And I don't know if that was all just drama for, you know, for YouTube, for documentaries purposes, but it seemed like you guys between then and Saudi Arabia really, really picked things up. And so there um, were, were some challenges in the beginning, right? Always. Right. But have, have you seen the documentary on the IndyCar, the Porsche IndyCar stuff? I have not, uh, but I am aware of the, of the IndyCar challenges. <laughs> yes. So, you know, the documentary, probably you could overlay one with the other, with the challenges that were going on. And okay. So we didn't have engines blowing up like we had in the IndyCar thing for a little bit before they got that straightened out. But that's why you do this. If it was a slam dunk or if it was, well, we just pulled these parts on and the alignment's perfect right from the start and you go. Um, there would be no challenge. So you have cars that will understeer or oversteer. Um, we're working with, you know, a spec tire. The Michelin tire is a spec tire. Everybody has to run on it. Um, and the chassis are all the same. So now is that, tire, that tire seems like it has some siping to it. Like it's actually a tire, you know, that it is. would go on a regular car. It is. It's treaded tire. 
Um, I don't have all the specs for Michelin um, with me, but the um, but it is a real tire. It's not a racing slick, um, but there's still things that have to come up to temperature and, and do the things that tires do. And you can't blow through your tires too fast. You just have to certainly save them for the closing laps so you don't you know heat cycle them out or, or you know wear them out to a point where you lose grip. Um, well, one of the criticisms but, with Formula One is there's always there's too much grip. Right. There's too much grip. There's too much downforce. It's too easy. These tires probably make it a little more interesting. Um, equalizer, for sure. It's <laughs> yeah. another one of the equalizers. Um, but anybody that says Formula One is too easy, I would. Well, you know what I mean. I'm talking in context, car. right? We have to we have to talk within context. Yes, Formula One is I would just pass out in the first corner <laughs> and probably die immediately. So there's no question about that. Um, so as drivers, did uh, Johnny and Loder, did they have any issues adapting, you know, as they came over to it? I know uh, Andre had been doing it for a little while, but yep. was there any issues like transitioning from – uh, a traditional race car to these or was it just kind of we're just going to drive this thing um i think a little of both certainly there's some challenges if you look at andre who has some experience with these um he's a little let's say quicker getting up the speed than neil has um but um ultimately it's a very tight field very short courses um and it's a you know you have to change your driving style a bit and uh you know you work through those things it's not unlike you know figuring out how you like the car set up and you know what's the proper alignment specs or you know back to the understeer oversteer thing how you like it it's also a matter of you know what works in traffic what doesn't work in traffic it's it's racing right so tell us about your your 99x electric tell us about this car well as we talked about a little bit earlier the car is a spec chassis with a spec battery um with some our unique bodywork on it so it's a little bit different and let's say some of the competition. Um, what advantages do you think your car has over some of the competition based on what you've been able to do? Uh, so far, I would say it's it's a nice surprise as far as say it's mid pack. You know, we landed on the podium pretty early in the in the season. Um, we've had some, I would say, strategy challenges uh, since then. We blew through some power where we got a penalty <laughs> and lost some positions because of that. Um, but the car itself is. I would say shows that it has the pace and is certainly in the field of competition after the first, you know, just a couple of races. So um, there's still a lot of development work to come and learning to come here as we go through the first season. So is there anything that's different kind of in the, in the paddock with the team as you know, you said you brought in a bunch of guys over from uh, the prototype racing and stuff like that. Was there anything that was really challenging to kind of discover, um, you know, when the cars come into the pits or when you're working on them before the race or after the race, is there anything that just really stuck out as different? Um, not for the guys. We've had a few conversations um, about it, um, but I think for them, it's competition. You know, we don't have pit stops like traditional pit stops where we do tire changes and fuel fill ups and that kind of thing. So once the cars go out, they go out. Um, and, and they don't they have to come in, back anymore because they used to just swap cars right because the batteries exactly. weren't working but now that's yep. gone this is the first year that we've gotten past that thankfully um now one car not only did they up the power output for the season the battery capacity has been increased so the cars are faster and there's uh, no battery swap or car swaps in the middle so one of the things that always made porsche special on track was its distinct distinct and unique engine design being able to to win with a flat six engine that was in the back of the car was always just wild right i mean it's, it's something that shouldn't happen but you guys found a way to make it happen all the time um is there anything lost not having that contrast anymore as we as we move past uh the combustion engine into the future is it does porsche feel like they're losing anything there 
Um, personally, I'd say, of course, kind of like we talked about before, without engine noise and without the things that differentiate um, car manufacturers from one to the other, whether it be Porsche to Mercedes to BMW. Right. Um, and, you know, growing up as a muscle car guy, you know, you had Tech GM itself had, you know, Buick, Pontiac, Chevy, Olds all had their own, basically the same size engines of completely different designs and no parts would interchange. So engines were a very strong identifier for your brand and what you, you know, your performance brand. This takes away all of that in my mind. However, um, I think it's a changing world. And um, for GM, they started using one engine, basically their, you know, the Chevy small block for this and uh, the Pontiac engine or the old real engine kind of wound up in a lot of other things too, as they figured it out themselves. Um, to remain relevant and you know current, you have to pursue other avenues, whether it be competition or research and development. Um, for formerly here, it's just one avenue of that. I don't think internal combustion engine racing is going away anytime soon. Um, just like being able to buy a car with a internal combustion engine isn't going to stop tomorrow. Um, the electric just is another option for you if if it's what you're trying to accomplish. Sure. So. How long do you think it's going to be till this type of racing is the norm instead of an outlier? Because right now it's very unique. It's the outlying thing. But over time, whether we like it or not, it's going to start to kind of propagate and take over. It is. And I don't have a time frame. Or I haven't of course not. But I'm just wondering what you think. Um, yeah. Um, if you look at how fast computers seem to you know, multiply in capacity and capabilities yep. um, as you know just in our little world of the last 10 15 years um, it's hard to say but I think that um, as the series goes to more city centers as people become more aware of it um, I think it'll become um, more prevalent of people having options I think uh, for their entertainment because it's beyond from a fan standpoint it's entertainment racing always has been so and it translates or loosely has translated over years to the old on Sunday sell on Monday kind of thing. And I right. think this is a, another window or opportunity for that. So is this stuff at all a springboard into doing the Le Mans, the new Le Mans hypercar stuff? Is this any of the technology that you guys are working on? Is that something that'll kind of parlay into that? Are you guys thinking about getting into that or can we even talk about it? Um, Conversation's over. No, <laughs> I think that um, you saw if you the hypercar thing is is interesting, but if you uh, um, saw the news that came out of uh, Daytona a couple weeks ago, um, the ACO and IMSA announced jointly a new class um, for prototype racing for both WBC and for IMSA. Um, oh, excuse me, and I think. What it does is, not that I think, what it does is it brings in uh, electric cars or electric power to go along with regular combustion engines. And it continues the hybrid side. It's um, called the LMDH. It's Le Mans Daytona Hybrid. And right. um, cars will be certified to run in both series. You could run them all season long in IMSA and then go run Le Mans. You can run them in WC and then come over and run Daytona. Um, it's something that's, it's a pairing that's been needed for a long time and, um, it's going to match what I understand, at least as of now, uh, run alongside the hypercar cars in the same prototype class. 
we'll see how all that shakes out. It's not until 2022, so I don't have a real good feeling on exactly how it's going to shake out yet. But it's um, going to be interesting, though. I mean, it's, you're going to have it's going to be this really interesting period in motorsports where you have combustion engines with hybrids with, and as time goes on, you like have electrics and hybrids and combustion cars going at the same time. I think we're mm-hmm. in for like really, really interesting um, time in motorsports. I think it's going to be great to watch. If you like competition and you like close racing, I think this only promotes all of that. Sure, it's going to be a little different. Um, but even NASCAR has made the announcement that the next round, I think 2022, will be um, with some hybrid uh, powertrains. So there's no um, choice. It, it, this, right. We have to, as you know, what I always talk about on the podcast is we have to have some sort of compromise. Otherwise, all of this is going to go away. So we can either we can either get into it, check it out and adapt and just appreciate what we do have or it can be gone. So those are the two and, choices that we have. And from what I can tell, it sounds like people are really trying to make this interesting and make it cool. And, and it seems like it's worth checking out. And make it work, right? And I think we all have a play in that. If we participate, if we show interest um, and it gains strength, then it'll all play out. If people you know, close their eyes to it, whether it be traditional motorsport or the new Formula E stuff, and it's not viable for manufacturers to go and play, if you will, and, you know, invest money and time and effort and see the results, then no, motorsports will go away, whether it be electric or internal combustion. And I don't think any of us want to see that. Absolutely not. So where can people go to watch the next uh, Formula E race that Porsche is participating in? Um, formally, so it's all online. That's the easy part. Um, that's something that they picked up on quite early in the whole process. Um, for things from Porsche side specific, we have a Porsche newsroom. It's newsroom.porsche.com. And um, there's specs on the car, there's race results, there's race reports, and and all of that. And uh, the race itself, where's the next race? The next race will be Mexico City. So okay. it's coming up right here. All right. Well, we look uh, we look forward to checking it out. I'm going to check it out. I know a lot of the listeners are probably going to check it out now. And um, I really appreciate you coming on and kind of explaining it to us. And hopefully we can plant the seed to get people on board with what is the inevitable future of motorsport. Cool. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care of yourself, man. You too. Bye-bye. Good talking. Bye-bye. That was a great interview. I really didn't know anything about Formula E. And like I said earlier, I and in the interview, I've been hesitant because maybe it's almost like the Miata thing. Like, I don't want to like it. Okay. You know, I don't want to be into it because then it kind of violates my personal creed of combustion, loving combustion engines and stuff like that. Right. You know, you almost feel like you're cheating on your wife or something <laughs> if you start to like electric cars. And it's... Um. <laughs> I don't. I don't you're not, personally. You're not, not familiar. I'm yeah, not familiar. No, I'm not, I, I don't just, just share we're that. Just, yeah, we're just saying. You know, if that's maybe if you cheat on your wife, call in and let us know how that actually, <laughs> how that actually feels. I don't know what I'm talking about. But anyway, I'm just saying that it, it's 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 difficult to to get into. But I'm going to give it a shot. And uh, from what I talked to with uh, talked about with Dave, it sounds really interesting. Yeah, I um, mean, I I do have to say is both the attack mode where they have to like drive on the outside of the course and then they power up like it's a video game right and you know what that reminds me of is there's this uh there's this old game and i'm gonna play a little bit of the music while we talk but here's the sound i think of when they go over um attack mode over the thing and there's some 80s kids out there that are gonna know what this sound is right away and it's a very short clip so if anybody knows (laughs) what what that is (laughs) it's a very very specific sound and i'll i'll play the music and everybody will kind of kind of pick up on it okay All right. That actually sounds 
sounds like a Formula E car. So here's the thing. As we talk about having the... Uh, for such a great song. I'm just going to let it play for just like <laughs> 10 seconds. Hopefully somebody's having a nostalgic moment right now. I know I am. So basically what F-Zero is, is it's a game that's set in the future, right? F-Zero. F-Zero. And yeah. these... these, uh, these Now, was, was this like arcade? This is Nintendo. Nintendo. Super Nintendo. Super Nintendo. Super Nintendo. Okay. So basically what it was, there was four cars that you could choose from. Yep. And I think this is a way better way to homogulate cars. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. So you've got four different cars. Uh-huh. You've got one that's fast. Uh-huh. One that's... Uh, or it has really fast acceleration, but turns like crap. Okay. okay? And then you have one that's... <laughs> so it's a dragster. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it just drifts all over the place. Okay. It has, it's way too much power, but it has a low top speed. And then you mm. have one that has an incredible top speed, low acceleration, but it turns really, really well. But it's oh, just so I was going to say really, that's really like a land speed record car, but those don't turn. No, no. <laughs> and then you have the two cars that are kind of in the middle, right? Sure. Like one's a little closer to the one car and another is a little closer to the other car. And they're all like different nationalities. One's like an American dude. One's like this uh, Japanese guy. And it's <laughs> so you have these characters to go with it. But the thing is, is that a lot of things in this in this race kind of remind me of Formula E because every time you go around the circuit, you get a bonus boost. That you can use that you, lets uh-huh. you accelerate as you as you go around the track. Right. And plus, when you go and you if you get damaged or anything like, you can turn off track and hit the recharge, which is this. You can woo, hit the woo, recharge, woo. Woo, woo, woo. <laughs> and it, even when I was looking at the the video of how this stuff works, the guy turns over and there's like this graphic that goes underneath yeah. the car as he goes over. It looks exactly like the every single well, time they do i had to laugh too in formula e they do dub over a sound i don't know if you picked up on I that i did not when you it view it, it was not that <laughs> but it is something like where it's like or like it's i don't know so that i feel like is a little forced and convoluted the other thing that i didn't realize until we had dave on i, I wasn't finished oh fine this would be a, an amazing way to do it. The only difference between <laughs> F Zero, you're, you're back to I'm back. the only okay. difference between F Zero and Formula E is that in F Zero the track is set like two miles up in the sky, okay. and if you go off the track, you explode. <laughs> <laughs> I think the safety regulation team would have yeah, some issue well, with they, that. What, 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 what if they, we give everyone like a parachute or like an they ejector do have, seat? <laughs> they do have halo protection. Yeah, that's on the car. Two miles? That's not going to help. <laughs> no, but I, I I kind of like the the techie video game aspect of this and it i does think remind me of that i a think lot. that's what they're going for they are and it seems fun right it's it seems fun it doesn't yes. seem it doesn't seem there is a competitive aspect to it for sure because everything's homologated um and it's all very very close all the performance of the cars is very close well, the tires in keep my mind close. that's why they need this attack mode is because otherwise it'd be super boring racing because everything is so well matched in my one thing i think one thing i think is interesting though is that you you don't get to use it all the time yeah and it's a limited resource right which i think using it at the right spot at the right time it adds um, strategy it adds sure. a lot of strategy to it so that's really really interesting and the other part are you done now? I'm done. Okay. I'm done. The other I, would, part... I could talk about F-Zero all day long. <laughs> I mean, it's one of my favorite video games I've of all time. I've never heard of it. It's phenomenal. I'll br- you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to bring them a Super Nintendo love it. into the studio. Let's and We're going to play F-Zero. I love it. All right. No, the other part that I didn't even know existed in Formula E 
but until Dave told us, was this like popularity contest boost thing? Yeah, yeah, that's another. I don't know about that. That almost seems really futuristic. Like I was talking about in the interview. Oh yeah, like it's some like this sort some dystopian of... future. It's, <laughs> have you ever seen Running Man with Arnold Schwarzenegger? I don't know if I have. Basically, it's him. This is like totally not related, but it's almost <laughs> weird. Like you think of the future when you think of things to compare Formula E to. Okay. Yeah, for it's, sure. So you think of Arnold Schwarzenegger. He, he's basically a criminal that was wrongly convicted, and he wants to get back to his family. So what he does is they throw him into an arena, which is almost like this Roman battleground, but uh-huh. it's like a city. And the cameras follow him around, and there's all these other guys that he has to defeat and kill to get out of um, out of this arena. And if he gets <laughs> okay. out of the arena and he's the last man standing, he wins his freedom. But all it is is the crowd is watching. Everybody's watching. It's all about crowd participation and crowd input. Which this and, is. Which this is. It's very, very futuristic yeah. in terms of um, just like the rabid fan following it's, it's kind of interesting that it's like only the top five uh, drivers right. get it. So yep. at least it's in a way that's fair. I don't see it as um, a good. So here's uh, here, here's how I want to start. Okay, okay. It it's interesting, and I like that there's some social participation aspect. Yes. It doesn't seem genuine though. It's not like this is the fastest car and this is the most talented guy because. You know, he's just a badass. It's for whatever reason, it's because he his team markets himself better or whatever else it is. I would agree. With you. This is not a pure motorsport. Right. Okay. It's not a pure motorsport. But I think if it was trying to be, it would be a lot harder for it to be yeah. something that people would want to watch. So instead, it's become a, almost like a spectacle motorsport. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the foundation for the future. I don't. Th- I think you're going to see a lot more pure versions of this type of thing okay. um, as you get like the hypercar classes and you yeah. start seeing mixed races. They're not all of a sudden going to start throwing um, attack mode strips at Le Mans. Okay, that's not probably not going to happen. But I think that you'll start to see um, maybe some other races start to do some things like that. But I, it's one thing. So I put this on my Instagram, right? Okay. And I was like, hey, we're going to have Porsche and we're going to talk about Formula E. And I got a lot of messages that go, well, ask them about all the diesel generators that are running behind every single car to charge them up during the race. Wait, what? And I went, are you kidding me? So I started looking into this a little bit. I'm like, okay, so is it this thing where it's a bunch of diesel generators powering these cars like under a tarp that nobody can see, right? Like it's like this secret <laughs> so thing. I'm, I'm picturing like in the paddock where they charge the cars before the race. Yeah, so there's, or whatever. A, there's a generator for each, for each car. And okay. it is a Cummins KTA 50 diesel generator. However, it does not run on diesel fuel. Okay. It runs on something called glycerin, which is mm. an odorless, non-toxic, water-soluble uh, byproduct of Biofuel, and there's videos of people drinking this stuff. They're like, ah, it doesn't taste good, but it's water soluble. Water soluble, you can drink it, and it is really? just—it's basically a refined byproduct of biodiesel production. It's also a song uh, by Bush. Glycerin, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it really is. It totally is. Um, but just think about this for a second. We're taking glycerin, which is something you can drink. Okay, this is something you can physically drink, water soluble. Right. We're putting it in a machine. Uh-huh. It's converting it to electricity so that we can go race cars. That is, we can go race cars. Yeah, we can go, go race, race cars. <laughs> we can go and race cars. Gotcha. Um, the only problem is the stuff isn't super energy dense. Um, right. So 
Energy is measured in megajoules, this type of thing. Yeah. Gas is 44 megajoules per, per kilogram. Stick with me here. Yep. Um, uh, the energy content of glycerol is 19. That's pure glycerol. is okay. 19 uh, megajoules per kilogram. So it's what? That's, that's less, than, less half. than half. And um, what is this glycerine? However, the crude glycerol is 25. So it's a little bit better than half as good. Um, that's probably due to the presence of methanol and biodiesel that's left over in it okay. from being siphoned off as a byproduct of making uh, biodiesel. So what is a megajoule? A megajoule is 238 kilocalories, which is a unit of energy of 1,000 calories. So there are 380 calories in a chili cheese burrito. Right. So three chili cheese burritos, presuming they aren't all the same, we'll presume that they're not because there's a bunch of idiots making them, is one kilocalorie. Okay. So then one megajoule is essentially 714 chili cheese burritos. <laughs> Therefore, okay. one kilogram of glycerin is of in terms of energy right. is equal to 31,000 chili cheese burritos in terms wow. of energy. Think of that. 31,000 chili cheese. How long would it take you to eat 31,000 chili cheese burritos? Just to put, you think that it doesn't have a lot of energy density? That's a lot of chili cheese burritos. I, yeah. I mean, that's yeah, a lot this is of energy. a very strange analogy, Chris. Well, what but else yes. do you want me to use? Chili cheese burrito is a very, very simple thing to understand. Is this going to be our new, like, kilowatt hour? It's how many chili cheese burritos? <laughs> so the new McLaren is out, and it's got uh, 76,000 uh, chili, chili cheese, cheese burritos, burritos per kilogram. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess it's... Uh, this is, it's not perfect, but it's probably better than, you know, carting around a bunch of nuclear reactors, which is about the only way you can have <laughs> clean power at all times, I guess. So. Yeah, I guess. Does this, so when you burn glycerine, does it have the same, like, it's carbon? It, it's No, no, it does not. It is a lot cleaner. It's okay. almost uh, negligible. They, Interesting. They say, I couldn't find any um, real research. It was just press releases for Formula mm -hmm. E and press, press releases from Aqua, whatever the name of the company is. So I couldn't get any independent research on this. Sure. It might be worth looking into to find out what's really going on. But it seems like pretty undoubtedly it's really, really clean. Huh. So at least they've got that going for Interesting. them. Interesting. So that's it. That's all I got. All right. Well, before we leave you guys, we got to talk about our sponsor, Worth USA. Worth is a family-owned global company that's been in operation since 1945. And what sets them apart is they offer the highest quality, professional-grade shop supplies and tools with the industry-leading customer service. This is the professional-grade stuff that the shops use. They also have an awesome... Uh, line of hand tools that they're releasing the U.S. market. They're I've German used a couple made, of the wrenches. They're great. Lifetime warranty. Head over to WorthUSA.com to check out all their products. Uh, otherwise, you can uh, get in touch with our guy Andy online. He can help you out as well. Yeah. We'll uh, see you guys on Monday. Thanks for listening. Take care. <laughs>